Hello to you if you're watching this in the Shoreham site at Oasis at the Villas. Good to visit you last week or at the Clarendon Centre or watching this online. There's a question that has puzzled historians and sociologists for generations. And that is how did Christianity become so successful? How did it develop from a room full of believers in Jerusalem to within a few centuries become the official religion of the Roman Empire to becoming the primary shaping force of Western civilization? and now spans continents and countries gone right around the world. An organization called Wycliffe last year reported that at least some parts of the Bible have been translated into 3,658 languages in the world. What is it that has enabled Christianity to span culture and language across the centuries? Well, we've been looking through this series that we're actually about halfway through now. In our series entitled The World Turned Upside Down, we're looking back at the origins of Christianity, focusing on the first few chapters of the New Testament book of Acts. And we're asking the question, I suppose, how did Christians turn the world upside down? And over the years, there have been many theories and explanations you could give to that. One is that, well, it's the power of God. And of course, that is a a very Christian uh, answer to the question. But in our series already, we've looked at how these disciples of Jesus underwent a spiritual experience, a, a filling of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you could explain what happened with Christianity as a transformed people operating in the power of God, transforming society and the world. But others would say, well, the message, the message of Christianity, the gospel, the good news is what has caused Christianity to be successful. And it certainly was, even from the beginning, a radical and revolutionary idea. Did you know that early Christian disciples were accused in the Roman world in which they lived, they were accused of being atheists, which doesn't make sense to us these days at all. Why were they accused of being atheists? Well, they dramatically rejected the pluralism of their day. Now, the pluralism of the first century and the pluralism as we might understand it today are quite different. We live in a world where we talk about pluralism. We talk about, well, different people have different religions and just allowing those to coexist. It's a kind of like anything goes attitude. But in the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world of the first century, it was more an everything goes mentality. It's quite interesting. If you were to look up the Wikipedia page on Roman gods, (laughs) you'll be there for a while. There's just lists because the Romans had tons of gods. In fact, they had gods for every aspect of life. There was the sort of big, more major, important gods, but there was also household gods. You had a god related to your profession. There was gods of food and drink and love, power, just every aspect of life. There was a god for it. 
And so if someone in that context came up with a new God, the Romans were quite happy to say, well, yeah, that's fine. Add it to the list. As long as you respect our gods as well. But the Christians didn't do that. They said, no, Jesus Christ, he is our Lord and Savior and God. We won't bow down to any other God. We won't take part in any other type of religion apart from the true God. And therefore, that was a radical, controversial way of thinking about religion and about faith. Was it that? Was it that difference being so unlike the culture of the day that caused them to be successful and Christianity spread? Well, maybe. But others have said, well, no, it's not what necessarily they believed that was so distinct and revolutionary. It's actually how they lived. The Christian's behavior that became attractive and other people were inquisitive and wanted to join what they, this radical community. And, and you can take from the words of Jesus. Jesus gathered disciples to himself and said, go and make disciples. The early believers that you can see from the book of Acts were called followers of the way. There was an emphasis on living in a countercultural manner. And so it's, you could see Christianity and the spread of Christianity as a, a social movement. So which is it? How do we explain it? Do we explain it spiritually? It was the power of God. Do we explain it politically, the message of Jesus? Or is it socially, the revolutionary way of life of these early Christian believers that grew and grew and grew? Well, it's fascinating to dive into the history and think about it for ourselves. And then probably we'd all say, or most of us would say, it's a combination of all three. And we so far, as I say, we've looked at the radical experience of Pentecost. We'll keep talking about the radical gospel of Jesus Christ. But this week in particular, we're going to focus on the way they, these early Christian disciples lived and what they did and their behaviours. We're actually spending a second week in the same passage from Acts 2, 42 to 47, where the author Luke takes a step back from the action and gives a snapshot of what the community was like. And last week we focused that this was a, a community that was devoted to Jesus, but their devotion to Jesus outworked in two directions. Firstly, the vertical their relationship to God. They were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to prayer, what Jesus said, and fellowship with Jesus. But it also says they were devoted to one another. There's a horizontal dynamic as well. And we're going to focus on that now. And so let's listen to the passage again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Over the years, many branches of Christianity have emphasized a simplicity of life and maybe a communal way of life as well. We might think of monasticism or Amish communities and things like that. 
And when you read a passage like the one that we just heard, you, you, you can understand how people have got there. I mean, I could just say, well, you know, you've read the passage. Go on. Sell what you have. Don't own private property. Let's, let's, let's all meet together. Every day, it says, they met together. Certainly a provoking picture of what these Christian disciples lived like. And many people have asked the question, is, is this a blueprint of Christianity? Do we, do we today need to live like these people are living here? Well, we must remember that this is a descriptive passage. It's not telling us necessarily what to do now. And there is a danger of over-interpreting the picture that we see here. And we can understand elsewhere as we read on in Acts that people still did have private property. But I think the bigger danger, actually, is that we read a passage like this in this day and age and we try to explain it away. And we lose the radical nature of Christian discipleship that we see here. Yes, we live in a different era. We have technology. The context is, is different. There's different expectations on family. There's a welfare state that we live in. But there are still principles to be applied that we gain from a passage like this. And it should be a provocation to us. Last week, we began to think about this devotion, the devotion of these disciples. And we said that devotion is not just something that these disciples felt. It wasn't an emotion. It was an active, persistent, steadfast commitment even to overcome obstacles. And we're talking like this, and maybe if you're looking into Christianity and think, this sounds intense, this wholehearted devotion to Jesus and Committing to his word and prayer and worship sounds intense. And even more so, now you're saying they were devoted to each other. And they did radical things like sell what they have in order to give to those that were in need. Wow, it seems a bit extreme. Devoted, verse 42, they were devoted to fellowship, which is probably a word that's not really used outside a Christian subculture in my experience. And if you're looking in and think, this fellowship, it sounds weird, it seems intense. But I think also there's something about it, I think this is attractive to anyone. If we can imagine a type of community like this really existing, you can imagine it, someone says to you, oh, I sold my car so you can pay your rent, here's the money. <laughs> Who wouldn't like that? Wow, what a community to be a part of. Oh, you can't, you can't afford to eat. Yeah, share my food. Oh, you've got nowhere to stay home. You're, my house is your house. Whenever you want. You, oh, your kids need some new clothes. Hey, I'll sell my watch and you can buy your kids some clothes. Wow, it sounds bliss. It sounds utopian. Can it be real? And we must remember it's this radical community that grew and grew and grew. Where does this mindset come from to, to live like this? Well, let's think about this fellowship word that we have here. As I say, it's not often used uh, outside of Christianity. And the Greek word that is translated as fellowship is uh, the word koinonia, koinonia perhaps. 
And uh, those words, fellowship, koinonia, uh, are words that often uh, crop up and are used in Christian circles and maybe not elsewhere. The church that I grew up in, the, the mums and toddlers group was called koinonia. And so we probably all have uh, different connotations when we start to use these words. But this Greek word here is translated slightly differently in different parts of the New Testament, which gives us a fuller sense of its meaning. This word fellowship, but it's also translated elsewhere as participation or contribution, a sense of sharing in something. So the fellowship is not just friendship, it's seeing themselves as connected to one another. And what we're being described to us here is a commitment to one another that comes from a communal identity. They weren't living like this just because they felt they ought to, or Jesus told us to be nice to one another and give to the poor. No, the early Christians thought of themselves primarily not as individuals, but as part of a whole. And that's a provoking thing. Do we think like that? Not an individualistic identity, but a communal identity. This is the church here. In my house, we have young children and we're forever finding uh, jigsaw pieces. My boys like to do jigsaws, so do I actually. But anyway, finding <laughs> jigsaw pieces. And there's something quite tragic about when you find a single jigsaw piece. Because on its own, whether I found it under the sofa or under the rug or whatever, it's like, this is worthless. <laughs> this can't, you can't play with this. This is, it does nothing. It's useless. But also you think, and out there somewhere in a house, there's a box of a jigsaw and it's got a piece missing. So there's some deficiency in that as well. And it's tragic. It's one part of a whole. Another thing that I find around the house commonly is uh, little cars, <laughs> little cars. And when I find a little car, again, under the sofa or under the rug or whatever, I think, okay, where does this go? This goes back in the box somewhere. Okay, it does belong in a box perhaps. But it, it's not quite the same because the car is a standalone thing and it can be played with on its own. And maybe there's other cars that are like it and a set that it goes with perhaps but it's standalone it's not the same as finding a jigsaw piece why am I talking about this when I read this passage I think these early Christian disciples they thought of themselves much more as jigsaw pieces than toy cars they're on their own that's not where their identity comes from their identity comes from being part of a whole and I think we are prone in this day and age, even in the church, to think of ourselves as little toy cars. And to think, well, we primarily think of ourselves as individuals and being part of a church, well, that's good and that's nice. And there's something nice about being together, just like toy cars all together on the mat. And it looks good, but it's an optional extra, perhaps. It's not an essential part of identity. You know, if I was to ask the question, to whom do you belong in our postmodern times, that kind of question, well, I belong fundamentally to myself. I think of my life, I think of my opinions, my dreams, my ambitions, my truth even. 
community, we all agree, having friendships, community, being part of something, oh, it's a nice thing, but it's an optional extra. We don't see it as essential. And this passage is a provocation to us and a great challenge for us because the Western individualism that most of us have been so influenced by is not biblical. It's not gospel. In fact, it's anti-gospel. Because the way of Jesus is other, other people focused. The way of individualism is selfish. To look to our own interests first. Jesus said, no, it's the other way around. Look to the interests of others. Like he has done for us. Now, I don't have time to go into and describe the rampant individualism and how it's destroying our society in many ways. But instead, what I want to do is focus on the origins of the gospel communal identity that these first Christians had. Notice in this passage, there is two mentions of the breaking of bread. In verse 42 and verse 46. It's probably describing that they had meals together, but it's at least implying the celebration of communion. Remember, we've already said that the disciples were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is the things that Jesus taught them, what Jesus said and did. And one of the things that Jesus said and did with his disciples is described in the gospel accounts of his life as we now call it the Last Supper, where Jesus took the Passover meal and re interpreted it, reorientated it towards himself. He, the sacrificial lamb, the true sacrificial lamb. And that's where communion that we take every Sunday comes from. In Luke 22, it says this, Jesus took bread and he gave, had given thanks. He, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he instituted this meal that would point to the death that he was about to undergo. To say, I'm giving my body for you. This is my body. When you take this bread, this is my body which is given for you. And then Jesus went and he was betrayed and arrested and crucified. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who's crucified for our sake so that we, through faith in him, can be forgiven. Jesus gave his body, but by explaining this to his disciples, he said, I'm giving myself to you and also uniting you to me and you to one another. We take communion each Sunday as a way of celebrating what Jesus has done, that he's given himself, that we can have forgiveness in Jesus because of his death. But also we don't take communion individually. We all come to the table together. Because Jesus has explained, as he explained to his disciples, that as he's giving his body for them, he's uniting them to himself and to one another. And this idea is key in the New Testament teachings, the body of Christ. Jesus has given his body physically so that you and I can be, come into his body spiritually, which is a big slice of theology that we're looking at here. I'm trying to do justice to it. But we're united to Jesus by 
receiving in faith what he has given for us, we are united to him. So much so that the church of Jesus Christ is called the body of Christ. And in the New Testament, that phrase, the body of Christ, to talk about Christian believers, to talk about the church, is most commonly used by the Apostle Paul. And when you think about it, I'm not sure that's a surprise because the Apostle Paul went through a dramatic conversion where the bodily resurrected Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And up to this point, Paul, who was also called Saul, was a Jewish leader who was persecuting Christians, persecuting the, the early church. But Jesus appeared to him and said, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting my body. Such is my identification with Christian disciples. They're my body. If you do that against them, you're doing it against me. And so we take communion because we're rehearsing this doctrine. Jesus has given his body for us and we are now the body of Christ. And we will take this meal until we celebrate bread and wine with him as he returns in his kingdom. We do it together, we're united with one another. And this idea of being a body, the church being a body, is explained many times in the New Testament. Let me read a passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. You become a Christian and you say, well, I'm giving my life to Jesus. And that's true. But Jesus said, right, you're part of my body now. You're one member and here's the rest of the body. Other Christians, you're spiritually connected to them as well. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So, Get back to our text here. They're celebrating communion together. They're following the teaching of Jesus and his, what he said to them. And this fellowship that they have with one another, it's not just they're doing it because it's a nice thing to do. No, they genuinely see that they're a body together. They're spiritually connected together. This is essential Christianity. So again, we can say the early Christians, the disciples, saw themselves as part of a whole, members of a body. Do you? Do you see, do you see the church like that? Do you see yourself like that? Do you see that Jesus has joined you to his body, the church? And this, Emmanuel, is the local expression that Jesus has joined you into. You're part of it spiritually. This is extremely challenging I think it's provoking I'm I'm reading this for myself and being provoked and challenged do I think of myself like this and you know for those of us who are introverted and find it more difficult perhaps to, to to connect and to relate and it's not such a a thing that would come instinctively you think wow okay I find it challenging to me However, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm in a couple of small groups this, this term. I want to be, I'm in friendships with others in the church. We can be open and honest with one another and maintain good friendships and trying to be hospitable to people. Because 
is this what the church should be? This is what the church is. And so practically speaking, what does this look like for you? How much even coming here on a Sunday is a priority for you? We know, we've noticed it's changed since the pandemic. Perhaps Christians' practice is, is differing and there can be a lessening of the sense of the importance of meeting together as a church. And I think we've maybe ha- perhaps lost sight of, you know, we're, but we're a body together. We need to gather together. And we know, I know we bang on about small groups, but Christian friendship and being together is good. And sometimes in a small group, you get to meet members of the body that you wouldn't normally naturally meet. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Are you serving? Are you giving time? Are you playing your part? Are you seeing yourself? This is my body. I know it's difficult. I know we don't always get on. I know this it can be awkward and that sort of thing, but but it comes from a place of knowing this is who we are. Jesus has joined us to his body. If Emmanuel is your church, then this is the local expression of the body that Jesus has joined you to. Please don't be a severed limb on the street outside. You're a member of the body. Be connected in. Participate in the whole. And so when we understand all of that, we get on to verse 45 and it says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And when we read that in the context of what we've just explored, it doesn't sound so crazy anymore. We look at that and think, Oh, of course, because they thought they saw themselves as a body. Well, if one this need over here, well, it's part of my body. Of course, I'm going to give what I have in order to serve. If my foot is cut, I'm going to use my hand to bandage it. That's just body behavior. So this sense of radical generosity doesn't come from obligation or pressure or the leader said you ought to give. It comes from an understanding of who they are in Christ be in Christ's body together. And brothers and sisters, we are involved in that right now. And this is a wonderfully generous church. Many of you are giving week by week, month by month, and it's wonderful because you see this already. I just want to encourage you in it that as we give financially to this church, what is happening there is you are giving and serving and releasing ministry to the other parts of the body, the other members, your brothers and sisters in Christ here. Whichever site you're in, because you give financially to Emmanuel, there's someone that's sitting a few seats away from you and they're being discipled in a, in a Thrive course this term because of your giving. Someone behind you perhaps is, is, is on Alpha this term and they're discovering Jesus for themselves. You've got over 100 people involved in Alpha this term. As you sit in your seats now and as you're giving financially to this church, another part of the body, the, the children, in their children's work and our youth work, they're being helped, they're being discipled, they're being exci- getting excited about Jesus and being taught the Bible because of your giving. You see, one part of the body gives and we give it and each member of the body is served. Someone across the room from you right now, your giving has enabled them to receive Christian counseling, to deal with trauma from the past, and they wouldn't have been able to afford to access that on their own. That's what your giving goes towards. So many things. There are people in this city this week 
families that are being fed via our food banks. Your giving is feeding families who would otherwise be hungry this week. It's a wonderful thing. This is, this is what it means to be the body, to be the church. We give here as we have something to give so that need over here can be served. Your giving releases so much. You pay for a, a church staff here. And what do we do? Spending our time, spending our time. I'm teaching you the Bible right now. There's other staff that are, are doing kids work, are doing youth work, are serving our sites on a Sunday. Four, uh, four sites across this city open the doors every Sunday and during the week as well to serve our city and proclaim Christ. We lead you in prayer. We produce discipleship materials for you. We train people pastorally to serve and help na people navigate. We make leadership decisions with your best interest at heart. We have a safeguarding team to keep you <laughs> safe and and, and praying for the sick and doing all that we can. Your giving is releasing ministry week in, week out. Yes, your giving keeps the lights on and pays the electricity bill and fixes the buildings, but it also empowers ministry that sees people saved and their eternal destiny has changed and sees people served pastorally and helped through crisis and difficulty in life and trains people up and, and sends people out to, to reach this city and, and even further and, and reaches around the world. And week in, week out, we do good and we do good and we do good. And it's wonderful. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is what it's like when we have a, a body mindset. We're the body of Christ and we're giving ourselves to that. There's nothing like it in the world. This is the body that you are a part of. I want to say thank you so much for having this body mindset and giving generously. It's wonderful. But also I want to say we've got challenges. We've got challenges financially as a church. How many of us have got challenges financially at home? It's a tough time. Things are more expensive, aren't they? Is a cost of living crisis. Bills are going up. Our buildings getting older need work. Things need to be done. Challenges need to be met. We'll be saying more, I'm sure, as the term goes on, as we release the next financial summary. Just like you, probably personally, this, this financial challenge we're going to overcome. So what do we do when things get tough? If you're facing that in your personal household finances, we're facing that as a church, perhaps. And the temptation in these moments when things are tough is to pull back. And the, the world would say, well, look after number one. You know, gen, being generous to others, well, that's a, that's a luxury. Look after number one. Pull back on the generosity. Keep that standing order the same. Don't consider raising it or maybe just decrease it. Look after number one, first of all. That's what the world would say. But we're not the world. We're the church. And we're not called to have an individualistic mindset to look after number one. <laughs> No, no, we're called to, like these disciples, have a body mindset, have a faith mindset. Are we going to see the challenge of the financial climate that there is right now? Are we going to see that as an excuse to pare back on generosity? Or are we going to see it as an opportunity to prove the faithfulness of God? And to trust him afresh. And we say, no, no, we're the church. We're the body of Christ. I'm going to choose my brother's need here in the church. 
I'm going to serve my sister by, by giving and continuing to give and giving generously, even in this climate. And, and so I'll give. I'm going to see that need as more important than my own. And so I'm going to give and give and give again. I'm going to choose the lost in this city as more important than myself. I'm going to choose building this church in this generation so that the next generation can be served and can, can continue on what we have built from here as we have built on those who have given and given and given again in generations gone by. This is the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give, and so I'm going to give to Emmanuel. I'm going to give to the ongoing work of this church. I'm going to consider my standing order this week. And say, can I give more? Is there room for more generosity in my heart and in my life? You know, I used to, I used to say to God, I used to think, oh God, just give me enough money so I, I don't have to worry in life. Which sounds like a humble prayer. I just don't want to have to worry about money. So can I just be comfortable enough? And I don't want to be rich and no one wants to be poor. But I feel the answer from God is like, what? What you see? So you, don't, you want to be comfortable so you don't have to trust me. <laughs> so you don't have to fight the fight of faith. You don't have to go on an adventure of generosity. You don't have to experience what it's like to put yourself in a position that God has to come through for you. That's, no, I'm not going to let you miss out on that. That's not what I've called you to. I've called you to faith. I've called you to see yourself as part of the church who, who lives a different way, who has a different mindset. Who gives even when it's costly? Who gives even when it hurts? Because giving, even when it's costly and even when it hurts, is gospel-shaped giving. And just like these first disciples, they gave to the needs that they saw around them. They gave to the church community because they were devoted to Jesus And they gave because they're devoted to one another. And so do we. We give because we're devoted to Jesus. We give because we're devoted to one another. But we also give because our great Saviour, Jesus Christ, has given himself for us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but Gave him up for us all. This is my body I give to you. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's inviting you to trust him today. He's inviting you to see what he has done. Jesus Christ in giving himself for you that you can be forgiven, you can be freed, you can be connected into the life of God through the body of Christ, the church. And to see yourself as such, we are the body of Christ, interconnected and so intimately connected to Christ himself. He is our head. He's not going to abandon us. He's our head. He won't leave us. As we take steps of faith for him, he promises to provide. He invites us afresh today to trust him. And so unashamedly, I'm I'm encouraging you today to consider your standing order. Maybe you've not started one, to start one. I'm asking you to give more than you have been giving. I want to invite you to go, wearemanual.com forward slash giving. That's that's all the details there of how to give the ongoing work of this church. Why am I doing that? Because the church needs more money? Well, yes, we do. 
But really, because I want you to see that this is the way of Christ, that you are part of his body. He is the head. And he only asks us to give, having given himself completely for us. And yes, there is a cost of living crisis. It's difficult for all of us. I'm sure it's difficult for many of you more than it is for me. I realize that. I'm sensitive to that. But the reality is, it won't, there won't always be a cost of living crisis. Maybe five years, ten years, twenty years time, the economy perhaps will be doing better. Maybe you're poor now and you'll be rich in years to come. How are you going to look back on this time? How are you going to look back when things are difficult and things are tight? Did you respond with faith? The challenge was there. Did you respond with faith? Did you see it as a reason to live in fear or an opportunity to win the fight of faith and pursue Christ-like generosity even in the midst of it? To put Jesus to the test where he says, seek first the kingdom and I'll add everything else to you. I trust we'll have some stories to tell in years to come. Brothers and sisters, let's have a body mindset. He's given his body for us. Let's trust him. Let's put him first. Let's seek first his kingdom. Let's prioritize the church. Let's keep being the radical disciples of Jesus for the blessing of one another and many more to be reached in this city to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.